This episode of Luthier's Tale is brought to you by Zencaster, the podcasting tool I use to record every episode. It allows you to conduct an interview remotely and record each track separately. Plus, there is a secured cloud backup so you never lose your interviews. It's super easy to use and there's no software to download. My guests click a link and we start recording. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast, now's the time to start. Click my link in the episode description or use my promo code LuthiersTale at Zencaster.com for 30% off your first three months of a pro account. I'm Ben Liggett, luthier and owner of Liggett Guitars. Every episode I interview someone that is passionate about their craft. This week I'm speaking with Craig Snyder, owner of CR Guitars. CR Guitars carries everything in the boutique guitar world, including electrics, acoustics, and archtops. We speak about his career in music, guitars, and how he met the late, great Taku Sakashita. Let's get into it. I, my whole, my whole career has been as a guitar player and, uh, I, I, as a, I started, uh, when I was in teenagers, a jazz guitar player and I studied with Pat Martino mm-hmm. and then I got into, I was living in Philly and then I got into the Philly, um, studio scene which was the sound of Philadelphia and the spinners, the stylistics, uh, all the all, all the great bands that came out of Philly. And I did that. And then I moved to New York and I just was a studio and a session player. And I did some, I did Broadway and I did, uh, I was Roberta Flack's guitar player and Diana Ross's oh, and, wow. uh, I did albums with Edgar Winter and Elton John. And so my whole background was just as a studio session guitarist. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, that was in the seventies, late seventies. And then uh, somewhere around the late eighties, I started writing commercials and that was like the bulk of, of my career was just writing producing, arranging, playing on thousands of commercials. My company was Snyder Music with my wife, and we, we did very well, and, and, uh, which means I was able to buy lots of guitars. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I always, my father owned the music store when I was a kid, so I always was uh, involved in, with great players. And I mean, the first guitar I ever played was, was my father's uh, a guitar player in his band. I was like 10 years old and it was a D'Angelico. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, you know, as time went on, I just befriended the guitar luthier community. I actually brought Roger Sadowski to New York in the late 70s. His first, his first uh, shop was my apartment <laughs> on the Upper West Side. Oh, cool. And, and so... Uh, and I just became friends with everybody, and I love the stuff. It's a big passion to me, and and that's how I I got to zero in on uh, Taku. And uh, when I, you know, at one point, my passion for guitars became kind of like people were asking me, "Could you spec out a guitar for me?" And all this kind of stuff led to me, um, you know opening a, a guitar shop, a boutique guitar shop, CR Guitars, which actually I never, I, uh, almost as a hobby at the beginning, but it became like a real business. What Now, when it comes to your shop, is it kind of like a, an appointment only? Thing? Yes, yeah. definitely. It's yeah. in Rhinebeck, New York. It's, it's on the main street in Rhinebeck. It's on the 
second and third floor. And uh, I don't have any signage at all. You know, I, I just like, it's word of mouth and people just find me and find my site and, uh, and, and uh, make an appointment. And, but no, I, it's not walking. It seems like you have very good taste. You you always have uh, high end uh, luthiers. I always to me it's always been. I only will will carry things that I want to play. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, if I didn't sell it, would I be happy having it and owning it? And the answer is, in most cases. Uh, Yes, I mean I, that's exactly what it is. And also, these guys are my friends. I mean, mm -hmm. I've known John Monteleone. I've uh, for years Linda Manzer. I've known since the '90s. I, I she's done like 14 or 15 guitars for me that were very specific to my work. You know, mm -hmm. like uh, and and in fact, I had I, I was doing some advertising campaigns and and had her build me a baritone guitar in the nineties that I lent to Pat Metheny and Pat Metheny fell in love with it and called her. I loaned it to him for a bit for some projects. And then he called her because he was like her star, her star client and, and ordered one. And then the whole baritone guitar craze started when he started doing his albums with them. Oh, wow. So it's, it's, uh, these people are my friends. Uh, before, before, I carry a guitar. I have to. I have to know who I'm, who, who these people are, and I, I, I don't know. You know, it used to be easier with guitar shows that you would meet people, and one person would lead you to another, and that's generally the way it is. But mm -hmm. I, I always need to know what. For me, I have to be very clear what a luthier does best. And what he's most he or she is most comfortable doing, and then let, let him go do it. You yeah. know. Yeah. Well, it seems like um, uh, at least at the high end, there's a lot of. It, it's kind of more like art, and it's like the. I feel like the best luthiers, the the personality kind of comes through the instrument. Y yes, absolutely. Uh, the best. You're right. The best do what they do, you know, and, and hopefully what they do, uh, resonates with enough people that they're able to keep doing what they do. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know why, but out of all that, what was really interesting to me is the writing of commercials. How, how did you get into that? It kind of fell into, into a lot of categories. What we became really known for Snyder music was, because I did, at one point, I did all the music for IBM, American Express, Chevy, Mercedes, you name a big company, I've done their music. Oh, wow. 90%, and, and it was the whole campaign, Super Bowls and, and uh, Grammy, I mean, I'm t not kidding, I used uh, thousands of commercials. Wow. Most of them were a kind of underscore mm -hmm. not catchy songs i i don't know i i never was i never was the guy who did the catchy songs yeah uh i did their cool kind of jazzy quirky like i don't know if you ever remember any of the jerry seinfeld american express spots i do yeah i did every one he ever did oh wow. you know and so it was like we were known for doing like quirky kind of very, very high end music. Lot, you know, did you ever have situations where you had to bring in, um, say like, a, a, a like a string quartet or things like oh, that? Oh, everything. We did 50 piece orchestras. I mean, it was, wow. it was, I mean, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, he did this, uh, these commercials with American Express and he had Superman in them, you know, what animated Superman mm -hmm. and, and, and they were, we had 50 piece John Williams style orchestras in there that we had to do. Wow. 
And, uh, and then I remember going to f fly out to LA because I was doing, um, uh, the Olympics and one of the Olympic campaign for IBM. And I had to produce and record Spinal Tap. Oh, wow. For it. I mean, it, and, and the artists, like I worked with Bill Withers and Patty Lapone and, and I'm sorry, Patty LaBelle and, oh God, the list goes on and on of, of great artists. I had the, the pleasure and the, uh, for good fortune to work with as, uh, featuring in the commercials. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really uh, it's really cool, and and it's kind of um, I like when uh, a musician can kind of take uh, their talent and turn it into a successful business. So that that's really neat. Well, I was very lucky. I mean, a lot of it was my father was a professional musician, so I grew up in a world where it wasn't like odd for me to wake up in the morning and my father would have 20 accordion students down in our basement playing accordions yeah. you know <laughs> and so there was always great musicians uh around me he was a superb jazz accordion player which is like kind of almost like the butt of a joke but it's true he was a great musician and he played accordion and he also played piano. And um, he only had the finest players in his bands and his teachers. I remember one time uh, that he, I always wanted to hear Billy Bean play. I don't know if you're familiar who Billy Bean is, who was. Billy was like, Billy was the cross between Pat Martino and Wes Montgomery. He was, just a, an amazing jazz guitar player in the 50s who had personal issues that he, you know, kind of fa he faded out to the public eye in the, sometime in the 60s. But he still lived in Philly and, and my father hired him for me to hear him play. And my father's bass player was a neighbor and grew up right next to Pat Martino. And so he hooked me up with Pat Martino when I was uh, going to Temple University. And so in like 1972, yes, 72. And so we became like, it was just, I was fortunate to be around in a musical world where was not out of left field to make a living as a musician. You know, my father raised four kids that way. And, and, and so I, when I decided that I wanted to, you know, put all my chips into being a musician, I was always aware that it was a, a boat to get on to, to sail through life. And if you can, and my definition of success in the music business is you're able to stay in the music business at any level. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're in it and the music business, you know, it's showbiz and, 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 and it's kind of a tacky way, but it, it is someone's paying you and inviting you in into their life one way or another by buying your records, by going to a club, by hiring you to play a bar mitzvah wedding, whatever it is, they're inviting you and, and you have to show up for that in, in the best possible form you can. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's a great way to look at it. Um, so when it comes to guitars, um, when did you first like get the bug for exotic guitars? You said you uh, started playing a, a D'Angelico uh, very young. The minute I saw, well, my father had a music store, right? So there were always guitars around, even when I was a little kid and, and it would, be, and before the Beatles, there were guitars around and, 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 you know, harmonies and, and Dan Electros and, you know, cheaper stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but he had tons of magazines and I would see Gibsons and, and I was like 10 years old when my father took me on a job and I saw his guitar player and his name was Don Alterman. And he's in actually Samoro's book as one of the, 
uh, in his log there of people who bought the uh, D'Angelico's. And I saw his Dan Elect, a D'Angelico New Yorker, 17-inch New Yorker cutaway that was just like exactly like Johnny Smith had. I saw that guitar and it was all over for me. That's all I, I mean, the minute I saw that guitar, and this is before the Beatles, right? Yeah. I just knew that that was like, that was like special. And it, it, it stirred me and it never, you know, and the truth is it never really faded. I mean, it's not like I'm less excited now. It's just, I'm more excited. I get excited about different things guitar wise, but that one like just lit that fire. And, and then I was like, when the Beatles came out and I saw their guitars and my father would take me, you had a small store in Philadelphia and he couldn't get all the, um, the dealerships. So he would go to Manny's and drive up to Manny's and buy guitars at a discount for his music store. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, 12 years old, Rickenbacker's coming in and, and one of the great days when he, in my life was when I was like 13, 14, maybe he, uh, he opened up the Gretsch agency and he took me from Philadelphia. He took me up to the Gretsch company, which was right over the Williamsburg bridge in Brooklyn. And I walked in there and it was like heaven. I just walked into heaven because it was like all these machines going and people working and building guitars. And these were like the Beatle guitars, you know, George yeah. Harrison. And then I remember like all I, I remember seeing like a, um, uh, them build, making a, uh, a white Falcon and a Viking. And then they took me in a, in a room where their setup room and they had like, like 30 country gentlemen just in racks ready to be shipped out. And my father said to me, uh, uh, pick one for the shop, which meant like I could use it until he sold it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. So, so I remember while my father did his business sitting there with the, uh, guitar setup guy, and going through every country gentleman they had, 30 of them. And he was showing me, teaching me how to choose a great guitar. Mm. And, and I, I, never, I went through every guitar with him and it was like never bored, never wanting to leave. And he showed me how, to, how he would choose the best one. And we chose a country gentleman that I had until my father sold it. <laughs> now, out of that 30, uh, was there a disparity between yes. all of them? Really? How yes. much of yes. them? Well, you know, it's hard. It's hard uh, to know exactly. But each one, because I didn't know exactly what I was looking for. I was going by what he said. And he would show me ways to, to see if the neck angle was good. Mm -hmm. And, and the action was good. And, and, um, but each one, I, I really was very sensitive to each one being different. And, and, but yet they were all Gretsch country gentlemen, you know, Gretsch was not known for being like the most consistent, mm -hmm. you know, company. So there were probably more disparities there than if you went to Gibson. But I do recall when I was a kid in the uh, early in the 60s and my father had these great jazz guitar players and and uh who taught at the store and they had like Gibson Birdlands and Gibson 175 and all these amazing guitars and my father would get a shipment of Gibsons in and they even back then during the supposed golden era of guitar making they said ah oh, maybe one in ten is really good wow you know to them like the real great guitars were made in the 50s <laughs> yeah you know we love like uh, like i i think the two best years for the 175 arguably uh if i had to just choose would be 1959 and 1964 and you know and so 
to to them, if it was like 1963, 64, 65, in those those times, they would go, "Ah, you want a 50s one." They 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 were even critical back then. Mm. So when you when you're looking at uh, luthier made guitars, do you find the consistency to be better? That's a good question. Um, they're definitely consistently who they are, mm. you know? So like if I would take, uh, uh, I don't know, pick a guitar, uh, a trowel god, let's say sure. one, tr- which I've owned like five or six trowel gods, uh, each one will always feel like and sound like a trowel god to me. Um, but since each one was made for a specific person, mm with specific needs at that time i can't say that they're all consistent as far as like neck shape they're all consistently good but they're not off the uh, out of like a gibson from a year is very consistent within itself i see some are better than others but you kind of know what you're in for when you get a 1959 gibson yeah or 56 strat you you know you know there's a range but you know but if i'm going to get um a, a, a individual luthier's guitar well i can pick one up and say it's the greatest thing cuz it works for me and then i can pick one up and and it was made for someone who had tiny hands or or who wanted string spacing totally outside of what i would want right so it, it's it's they're shooting for the highest quality all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, you're, you're shooting for the very highest quality you can do, but you're dealing with a very specific audience for each instrument. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's one of the reasons I don't take custom orders. Rarely. Once in a great while, if I know the customer, I will. But <clears throat> I just order and buy what I like. And I know that from from, I just know that I'll always find a home for for it if I really like it. There's going to be someone else who really likes it too. So you but would I spec out the instrument from the luthier. Absolutely. And if audience. someone really wants to get a detailed spec thing, I tell them you don't have to. Um, you you just go to the luthier and order the guitar direct. You know, I have no problem losing a sale. Uh, I would much rather someone get the guitar and be really happy and me not responsible for being being the one to disappoint them if something doesn't come out quite the way they want. Right. So I, I know that if I get the guitar, that all anything that's wrong or, or right with that guitar, I'm responsible for. You know, if I did something, experimented in a way with a scale length or a neck shape, or a multitude of things, I'm responsible for that. And and good or bad. No, I, I've seen too many people custom order something and say it didn't turn out exactly the way I wanted it to. Mm. As far as specs like that, when you're ordering for your customer base, is, is there a scale length, string spacing? What what things do you look for that you find most people will be happy with yeah what kind of guitar are we talking about um let's let's compare let's say electrics and then um say a finger style acoustic well i find that um anyone who's worked with me any of the luthiers and and i they'll all say that i'm picky (laughs) Mm -hmm. but but i'm also realistic and uh, to me, there are a couple things that are crucial to the guitar. Within seconds of picking up a guitar, I know if, if I'm going to bond. And I would say that uh, really important is that neck shape. Mm-hmm. That neck shape is, I would say, 70% of my energy in, in detail is in making sure that neck is so right that you never want to put it down. For you, what shape is that? Uh, 
Well, it depends on what kind of guitar I'm going for. If I'm going for a Strat-like guitar, uh, I would say that I I look at things is as as like uh, 1956. I I still own my 56 1956 Strat that I've had since 1974. Uh, it is a kind of soft V into a C. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't, it, it is not, it, it's big, I guess, but it's not overly large. It's not like, uh, uh, you know, no one will pick that neck up and say it's way too chunky, but it's certainly what it should be. And, the, and, but that neck shape works on a maple neck. I wouldn't put that neck shape with a rosewood fingerboard. Why is that? Well, because it doesn't belong there. <laughs> you know, a lot of it is, is to me, a certain amount of legacy is there. Yeah, with the historical models. Exactly, with the historical models. That's totally right. With the historical models, you, you need to, I think, to tip your hat to certain things. I've tried doing it so many ways. I've, I have put my money where my mouth is so many times and made so many mistakes before I kind of got to where I, 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 I feel confident about my choices mm-hmm. because I think that there's certain necks, like if I want a rosewood fingerboard on the Strat, I don't. I I prefer not having a soft V neck on that. I would w- want to have the more rounded oval kind of neck shape. Uh, and size, depending on, you know, I've gotten to the point where size of the neck is is a, a great luthier. Like Jay Black, you know who Jay is? Uh, I'm not familiar with him. Jay used to be one of the founding uh, master builders for Fender. He used to also work for Roger Sadowski, and he builds all of Bill Frizzell's guitars. Um, and and Jay, I played neck. I love Jay's neck work. And when he makes a neck, he can take a thin neck and just by how he does the shoulders, make it feel full. Yeah. A perfect example is uh, is Olsen's necks. I've owned like a half a dozen of Jim's guitars and his neck is, is a thin neck, but the way he does it and his shape, it's all, it makes it so comfortable. I would never order from another luthier, the specs of an Olsen neck, but I would, if I'm getting an Olsen guitar, I've only would want the specs of his standard neck. Sure. That makes sense. So a lot of it is is just legacy and and um you know you if I was going to do uh a acoustic guitar like a, like a fingerstyle acoustic guitar you know I'd want a one and three quarter inch one and three quarter size neck right yeah. But if I was going to do an acoustic guitar that was like, I really wanted that 60s vintage vibe, I would do 111 16. Sure. You know, so it's just a matter of like knowing what folder to go into for what your vision is of the whole guitar. Yeah. Yeah. You what can is take its the, purpose? Exactly. You could take the very, very best Gibson neck you've ever played the best one you would swear that that would be the greatest neck for any and put that on a fender and it'll <laughs> suck. <laughs> That's interesting uh, how that works. Yeah. And then you, and vice versa, you could, you know, you'd be lucky if it, if it was okay. Yeah. That's you interesting. Know, so to me and, and the great, the builders that I have dealt with that are like the exceptional builders that I, on a personal level, level have dealt with, know that. 
and and they get that like right in there right away. That's part of their thing. Like going to Sakashta, he knew that we would talk about next. He he knew about next as much as anybody I I ever knew. And and he, I have reams of emails where we just talk about what neck to put on the new pole or the spotlight and what shape. And then, and then we were talking about scale length. And, and, and he, again, it was like stuff he knew that I felt like I, I met my brother. Yeah. And, and he, you know, and, and, and another, I remember uh, I had quite a few DeQuistos and Jimmy DeQuisto uh, was the same way. I mean, he just couldn't make a bad neck. Even though every neck might be different, each one was so playable because the the amount of tension, attention, and and amount of care for where the player put his hand was was at at like the highest level. Wow. Yeah, so the, let's get into Taku. Uh, that's how you and I originally uh, first started talking about doing this podcast. Um, I feel like you and I could uh, do an entire podcast just on you. Um, <laughs> um, but how did you how did you meet Taku Sakashita? Um, and, and what year was that approximately? Well, you know, it was it was. I think two years before he passed away. Okay. I had, I had seen, I think Robin Ford play and, and Pat Martino playing these absolutely cool guitars. And I don't know it, when I get, get something under my skin, I will, it's like an itch that I have to scratch. So I find the luthier. Mm-hmm. When everybody says you can't get a guitar from that person, that means I better go get a guitar from that person. <laughs> the same thing with the Quisto. I was told you'll never get a guitar from him. I ended up getting three guitars and and going out to see him once a month uh, at his shop just to hang with him. So um, I just, you know, Danny Farrington I, was like this mystical guy that no one knew how to get a hold of him. And I, saw a guitar that uh, Richard Thompson was playing and I, I just thought it was cool and I wanted to get a I wanted to get that guitar and I found him <laughs> and, and we became very good friends by the way and so uh, and and the same thing with Sakasha I just saw something and, and I just made it a point to try to find him and I was very fortunate that Norio Imai who is a guitar tech repairman builder extraordinaire in in new york city and a friend of mine uh from his days of working with roger sadowski uh hooked me up with him and and it was just one of those things that we we text and i'm sorry not text we emailed each other and and i talked you know told him what i was looking for and and just he was like any friend of norio is a friend of mine and all of a sudden I got, I got the backstage pass to to Taco. Um, what was the first guitar of his you played or ordered? It was the New Paul. The New Paul. And what was your pre- impression of that when you got it? Well, it was breathtakingly beautiful, and it was, in my opinion, the best. Uh, Les Paul style guitar I ever played. What factors contributed to that? Taku knew about he modeled that guitar off. I think he said a '58 Les Paul. You know, and and he knew those guitars from re- doing repair work. He knew them intimately, mm-hmm. and he knew their strong points and he knew their weak points. And he was so insightful and and brilliant as a guitar maker he was able to uh he was able to handle the weak points of those guitars and keep all their strong points 
uh, and at the same time make make it so ridiculously beautiful. Yeah, his um, his kind of like inlaid pit guard thing is uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, and and not only that, I mean, it was it, it was just little things. He he, I oh I want we talked about neck dimensions, and he had a couple, and he actually uh, wanted me to trace my hand for him. Uh, and and fax that to him, which I've always been suspect of, by the way. <laughs> Is that a common thing if other people ask for that? Uh, I I think in the old days, D'Angelico, the myth is that D'Angelico and De Quisto used to say that. But but the truth is, I don't think uh, I I don't know. I, it might help the builder, but it would be rare that I would put confidence that if you give someone your hand tracing, you're going to get a great neck. Sure. You know, all I know is they wanted, he wanted it. So I, so I did that. And, uh, but really the great neck happened because he knew what a great neck was. And, and we talked about like the things that we talked about were like, he just, things I, I knew from my experience and he just knew too. It was like, um, uh, when 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 they, we talked about the neck dimensions and 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 the taper and and I said to, said to him, could you make sure you, you roll the edges of the fingerboard, and which is something to me that is like so many builders they're doing it more often now, but it, it is this one of the little one of the secrets to making a great neck is to make sure those you roll the edges of the fingerboard mm -hmm. and and he knew that already he said oh all my fingerboards are, are are rolled you know so and and to me it's like i can pick up a neck it'd be a great shape but the minute i feel these sharp corners of uh, where the fingerboard meets the neck it's like well you gotta roll these things you know like the old old guitars were rolled uh either rolled by people playing them in or I remember DeQuisto telling me that uh, when he worked for D'Angelico, the, the, the famous guitar players of the day, the studio guys like the Tony Matolas and the Al Kyolas and the Don Arnones and jo jo Jimmy, uh, Johnny Smiths of, of, of the time would come in. He said, and between sessions, they would ask him to roll the fingerboard edges. Their hands are getting tired. Mm. And and so you look at a DeQuisto and all the fingerboard edges are rolled and and any guitar that I've gotten I I've always made it clear to the builder you got to roll those edges and uh and it makes a big difference of course you have to know what you're doing <laughs> I've had guys who roll the edges to the point where you have no uh, uh, space between the string and the edge of the fingerboard anymore. That's not the point. The point is what you, what you want to do is just feel that warm kind of feeling. And, and taco just like knew that everything about it. He knew everything. Like I always felt for a Strat or, or even a Gibson, if you're going to go for a long scale length, let's say a 25 and a half, the real trick is to do the DeQuisto scale length, which was 25 and a quarter. Mm. And, and Ta Taku said to me when I got my spotlight, which is basically a Strat style guitar, he says, it's funny. He says, I never tell anybody about the scale length, but it is 25 and a quarter. He says, one of my secrets. And just, it, a, just it's a little less tension. It's a little less tension. That's exactly right. But you still don't feel like you're playing a 24 and three quarter inch guitar. Or you don't even feel like you're playing a 25 inch. You feel like you're playing, you're relating to it as if it's a, a 25 and a half, but it, it, there's something about it that's telling you, why is this the easiest 25 and a half I ever played? Because yeah. it's 25 and a quarter. Now, something I ask a lot of people about is 
the idea of responsiveness. And I kind of describe that as like the, the feeling of the vibration of the instrument in your fingertips, say on a fretted note. Um, it, are there, is there a, a responsiveness you find with uh, high-end builders like Taku that is more so than, say, just a factory guitar? In in most cases, absolutely, yes. But there, and I think the reason is because they'll build. They're willing to build lighter. Mm. I remember in the God, it was like in the around 2000, 2001, right after nine eleven. I, I remember I had an artist deal with uh, with Gibson, and Mike McGuire was the head of the um custom shop then and he what a great guy and he knew guitars god that guy knew guitars and and i had asked him i said mike i'd love you to make me like an l5 or 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 a birdland or something but you know the guitars in the 50s were lighter and and could you just make it lighter and and he he said no because gibson won't won't warranty it then so i think that the magic is that gibson martin they're in there for life and they don't want guitars coming back to them so they make sure that uh, their guitars aren't going to fold up and and so they in my in most cases i they overbuild them do you find um with Sakashta, do you find he had a, a good responsiveness compared to other oh, God, yeah. guitars? Yeah. Yes. It was like, you know, with his guitar, it was like his guitars, all of them felt like it was like you, they just breathed. Yeah. They breathed, you know, and so it was like there was, you were pumping air into a guitar and it was letting air out rather than you had a hammer and you hit the guitar and a clang came out. Sure. Did you ever receive any of his arch tops? No, I never. Well, the sad thing is that um, when, when I had gotten my spotlight guitar, uh, unfortunately it was, a, it was the last guitar he shipped before he was murdered and and I had gone out to LA to talk to him and my son lives there so it was on the on, on the agenda uh as far as the trip was concerned and and I was going out to talk to him because he wanted he wanted to build me one of everything he made wow. if I was willing he wanted to build a flat top for me an arch top for me his semi-hollow for me and his normal Stratocaster. And there was like, I think eight guitars that we were going to do. And I, and I, I went out there and was going to meet with him to start on the third guitar. Um, and when I got out of the plane, off the plane, I called his shop. I think this was on a Wednesday or Thursday. I called the shop and I, I didn't get an answer. And so I went to the hotel room. I tried them all that night, nothing. And then I get a call the next day. I think it was Friday, maybe from Norio saying that Taku was killed. Oh man. And I was totally in shock. I mean, cause I never met him personally. This was the time we were going to meet. Yeah. And it was such a, it was a horror show. Yeah. Um, such a brilliant guy. It's crazy. Yeah, I can't help but think of uh, all the things he would have made and been making up until this point, you know. Oh, absolutely. Well, he was on a roll. and But what he wanted to do and was really important to him was he wanted his guitars to be played. He wanted professional players out there playing his guitars. That's yeah. 
that was what he wanted. And if he and and if you were someone who was going to play his guitar, he he was all in with that. Yeah, he um, he also just had incredible uh, attention to details um, as far as the ornamentation of the, his guitars and, and carves and stuff like that. What what stood out to you about the guitars you received? Uh, well, definitely that you know his attention to detail, but also the ge the geometry of the guitar it was like you picked it up and it was like it it you were picking something up that had always existed mm. you know it was just like nature you know it, it, it like like it always belonged there there wasn't any anything i like i mean that spotlight is a simple guitar i don't know if you're familiar with that one uh yeah i'm not Okay, there were only two ever made. They're basically a Strat-style guitar with one pickup, one bucking pickup. Uh, I think the, I may have seen one that you had. Was it a spruce body? Yes, yes. Yeah, I have seen that. But it's but what's amazing about that guitar is he put a spruce top on it. But, I mean, let's put it this way. It's a spruce guitar with a maple cap in the back to protect the spruce yeah i mean that's like brilliant first of all and the ergonomics of the guitar and he put did a wenge neck on that guitar with the brazilian fingerboard um it's everything is perfect it, it's like i picked it up and any of his guitars there's there's nothing i would ever change that's one of the things about his guitars. When I, anyone I played, it's like, oh, this is perfect within itself. Do you know how long he had been building? You know, I don't. I, I honestly don't. I know that he had started, at least from what I understand, he started at, I, there was a, a Japanese company that was making guitars for the u.s uh esp mm -hmm. i don't know if you remember them yeah and uh and i think he worked for them uh so he'd been doing it a long time my sense was that he was doing it a long time and and that he had done a lot of work with professional players before he ever picked up a chisel for his own stuff. Yeah. He knew what pros need. And when I say pros, I'm not talking, I'm talking people who needed that instrument as a tool for their trade. Not that they were the greatest guitar players in the world, you know, not that. It's just like, this guitar is what serves me to go out there and kick ass, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that might be uh, having fun on a Saturday night or putting food on the, on, on the table, what, whatever it was, these were like John Monteleone and I talk about this a lot and it's, we call these elegant tools. And, and if you can, if you can keep that in mind, and I, I, as a builder, I always work with builders who make elegant tools. I'm not into trickster instruments. Tricksters. Well, what may what 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 would you consider trickster? Oh, I a trickster guitar to me would be a guitar that's made for your eyes. I see. 90, 90% of the time. And uh they serve that purpose. They're they scratch an itch, but they don't dig deep down into the guitar them that makes sense you know and it's and it's an interesting thing because there's so many builders out there now and some of them are so talented i'm young builders so talented so amazing but they've never 
really had their guitars put through the mill of years of being a, a tool and to see how it works for that. Yeah. You know, I've, I, I have seen, I've had more problems with boutique guitars, with finishes and truss rods than I've had with, um, with a Gibson or a Fender. Really? Yeah. That's not good. That's not good. But why? Because, well, they mean well. They start out right, but they they don't realize that it's like those specifics are you can't are are not tweakable. Yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? It's like I get that you got all the inlay and you've got everything right and all the bindings and all the mitering's perfect, but you don't have enough adjustment in your truss rod. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big problem. <laughs> yeah, or 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 I can see that the finish work and the coloring is beautiful, but after a year, it all sunk in and it doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... I know you want to do it thin. I know that, but how about thin and figure out a way to make it like durable? Yes. You know, and it's all these tiny things that that guys like Sakashta and guys like Sadowski, Roger and uh, Sadowski and and Linda Manzer and all these people they got it down how to do that. Yeah. Um, as far as Taku's guitar guitars go, um. How many of his guitars would you say are out there in circulation, owned and being played by people? Do you have any idea? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I think at this point, if people have them, you're not seeing them. They're 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 in their collections. Mm-hmm. They're they've become precious. Yeah, I don't see them for sale often at all you yes and if you do see him for sale they're going to sell very quietly um, you know it's, yeah we talked a little bit about that on the phone um what is it about them that uh why they would be sold quietly well i think that and and I could be wrong. There was a period of time where where it, there was a sensitivity to uh, to taking advantage of uh, Sacasta's le- legacy by making them so that players can't ever acquire them. Yes. And I think that I don't know if that's still the case. I, I really don't. I mean, but this was a while ago. And and I think that uh, you know when people have them, they it's like it's like you know when you want really great real estate in New York City, you don't see a for sale sign in front of anything. Yeah, somebody just picks up a phone call. You know. Yeah, yeah. There's you know, somebody some, waiting for it. If it yeah, one to- one of my friends who deals in 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 bursts says, if you ever see a burst for sale on a website it's it's the one that it's the one that any of the people that that burst collectors turn down yeah (laughs) that makes sense you know because you kind of know who who the audience is and you just make a phone call even even in my world here i get a guitar in and a lot of my guitars, I'd say half of them never make it to the site because I just get them and I, I know that there's someone for this guitar. Yeah. Um, when it comes to uh, Taku the man, um, what was he like as a person? What was his personality like? Well, again, we, uh, we never met in person. I never was able to look at his eyes. Uh, but I can say that he, from my experience, 
in the way that I knew him, he had incredibly high integrity. And he really, really cared about his instruments and about making you happy. I remember, I remember uh, on, on the new Paul that the nut on the guitar, the edges of the nut were sharp. And, and, and they were annoying, like if I was playing in the first position. And which is no big deal. So I took it to Norio, his buddy, and I, Norio just like you know, two seconds. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, it's not a problem, you know. Um, and uh, and and then I get a a, a tech a, an email from Taku that why did I not let him know this? <laughs> and it was like, well, it's it's really not a big deal. I didn't look at it like a big problem. It it just is what it is, you know. And he said, and 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 he said, but next time he wants to know everything that that might improve his next guitar. Yeah, that's that's a good quality to have. Yeah, he wanted to know if every, every if anything was out of place. A anything of his models that you've gotten to play what which one was your favorite wow i love i would it be wrong for me to say i love them all no no i love them all i think that's acceptable <laughs> i love them all i would i wanted everyone you know he was the reason i opened cr guitars oh really oh yeah because after i mean when I I just fell in love with everything he built so so much, and and I just when he passed away it was like I don't know I want to be able to try to find that world and bring it and share it to people. Yeah, and that was that was totally the reason. I mean. I didn't open CR guitars. You know, you, my business plan was very, very unique. Um, I was very fortunate to have this great career um, doing commercials and stuff. So I, I, I wasn't doing, this was a passion project for me. And the only thing I said to my wife is, I want to do this. And she's like the greatest there is like she's a great person. She's an amazing business person and a talented singer, and also a great guitar wife. <laughs> <laughs> you know the best. Like it was. There was never don't buy it. It was like well, if it makes sense, buy it. Yeah. So, but I I was always like I said. Listen, here's my business plan. I want to lose money slowly, <laughs> and I've been great at it. <laughs> <laughs> well that that sounds like a good wife uh i know for many years working at uh bishline banjos uh, a common practice was having uh having your wife's name inlaid on the banjo so she couldn't be too mad about the purchase <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how many i i do get I, and you know it's funny i don't get it often but I used to, for some reason, at a certain time, saying, "Don't ship it to my house." <laughs> this is I don't secret. get that anymore. Yeah, that's good. I, I I found that when after working with him, it was just so joyful. I, I I figured, let me do the very best I can to find instruments that can bring a lot of joy to a lot of people. Yeah, I, I didn't know that he was kind of the impetus of. CR guitars, so that's cool. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I, the experience of that, and and also, I had moved out of the city and moved upstate New York, and and my business was becoming, uh, more of a, uh, internet business. I could do it anywhere rather than having to have clients in a studio all the time. That it freed up a lot of time for me. I just wanted to go and. I just wanted to give the experience that I had when I was a kid 
of seeing that D'Angelico for the very first time. I wanted to, I wanted to just spread that as much as I could. I think that's very admirable. Well, it, 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 like I said, it, 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 you know, follows my business plan. (laughs) (laughs) Slowly, but you get to play a lot of uh, cool guitars in the meantime. Oh God. Yes. Yes. And, and also the friendships. I mean, like, like, you know, I get to hang out with John Monteleone and Ken Parker and uh, all these, Steve Marchione and Roger Sadowski and Linda Manzer, who was one of my dearest, dearest friends. I mean, we, it, it's great. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm a big Ken Parker fan and uh, I've, I've watched the talk he gave at the Archtop Festival. Yes. And, uh, and his designs and kind of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, uh, technological breakthroughs that he's doing with guitars. It's just he's, very he's, cool and he's admirable. A yes. And we've, I've known Ken since the 70s, and I, and I remember playing his very first archtop guitar he ever made when he was working on 48th Street. And, and we're buds. I have a Parker here right now. We will get on the phone or in person and talk for hours and he knows more about guitars and I'm not talking about what year and I mean I'm talking about the the DNA of a guitar and the recipes of guitars I I don't know he's like an encyclopedia yeah yeah it's truly impressive and well Craig I want to thank you for doing the podcast with me today it was a pleasure well thank you I mean this this was I, I hope I hope I was able to uh, not confuse anything. (laughs) Thanks again for listening to Luthier's Tale. As I said in the beginning, if you're thinking about starting a podcast, don't put it off. I put it off for a couple years, and I wish I'd started sooner. So if you're thinking about doing it, the easiest way to interview people remotely is using Zencaster. Use my link in the episode description or visit zen.ai slash luthierstale for 30% off a pro account for your first three months.